Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. dedicate uh, Declan today to the Lord. So I'm going to invite Michael and Joycelyn and Declan, if you guys want to come on up here and join with me, and then family and friends that you've invited to be part of things today, uh, you guys can come and stay down here on the floor at the base of the steps, and we will proceed with our, um, our dedication time. So you guys come on up here. We want to see your beautiful faces. He's kind of cute. Michael and I, not so much, so that's why I'm leaving my mask on. It's for everybody's sake. So it is a privilege to be able to, as a church family, and, and I know family members as well, to be able to participate in the dedication of a child to the Lord. We do not practice infant baptism. Uh, we believe baptism should be saved for believers uh, believer's baptism is that first act of obedience that someone who's trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior undertakes uh, in their discipleship process. So what we do instead is we dedicate families to uh, the Lord and dedicate young children to the Lord, knowing that it is in doing so that we open the door for blessing and God's guidance and holding one another accountable to raising up our children well. So uh, some scripture to get us started. My child, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commands, for they will bring you many days, a full life, and well-being. Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Tie them around your neck. Write them on a tablet of your heart. Then you will find favor and high regard with God and people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him. And he will make your paths straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will be healing for your body and strengthening for your bones. It's our privilege today to participate in the public dedication of Declan Ashish Jurek. Born April 5th of last year. A COVID baby, right? Uh, Well, no, I mean, he was, anyway. You guys, the youth pastor in me starts going and it just, it could go downhill quickly. Following the example of devout parents in the Bible, Michael and Joycelyn have expressed their desire to present Declan to the Lord. This dedication may not require the supreme sacrifice like that of Abraham, who was asked to offer up his son on the altar, or that of Hannah, who left her son Samuel to serve in the temple with Eli. I do not want Declan. I will not ask him to come live at the church with me. I have done my duty on my kids. I'm almost I'm almost finished, so, uh, so we're going to let you guys keep him. Whereas Hannah left Samuel to Eli's care. However, it's a sober commitment to responsibly care for that which God has given and to be prepared to release him to his work when that time comes, allowing Declan to be the best whatever it is God made him to be to God's glory when that time is right. Right, buddy? <laughs> 
Jesus demonstrated his acceptance and love for the little children when he said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. So we're going to have a charge to three different groups of people today. To you guys, as Declan's parents. To you, as his close friends and family. And to you, church. So I want you to listen carefully to the things that we are asking of one another in this dedication of Declan to the Lord. The primary responsibility for the care of Declan, of course, rests on your hands. Joyce Lean. Nike. Yeah. The scriptures tell us to train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up. Michael, Joycelyn, as you guys engage in this task with joy and peace, may you earnestly seek the Lord daily for his wisdom. And it's going to get to be more and more seeking the Lord, especially as he learns how to walk better and better. For all the events that are going to happen, all the decisions to be made, all the needs to be met, for as James says, if you lack wisdom, ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you. May you also daily give thanks to God for your son and for the joy and love he brings to your home, especially when you step on a Lego. Remember, remember the joy it brings to have him as part of your life. As he grows, may you earnestly strive to spend adequate time with him. Amen. Developing in him a strong moral foundation for life and an awareness of the lordship of Christ and his abiding presence. Family. Declan also has the benefit of all of you. Grandparents, aunts, uncles, adopted family members. You guys are being asked to provide backup support for these two. It's your responsibility to provide care and support for this beautiful little family. It's your responsibility to support their decisions when they've pursued God's face. Not to question them. Not to critique them behind their backs, but to lovingly support them and lift them up. I encourage you to pray for them. I encourage you to undergird their efforts to have a strong Christian home. And I want you to have a real interest in Declan and his life. I want you to, to really pursue relationship with this young man because he, he'll need you as he grows. Church, you are a major agent of influence in the life of all of our children. I charge you to do all that you can to provide and support a place of worship in this community where Declan will hear the full counsel of God's word. I urge you to be faithful in providing all that you can to instruct him in discipleship and to demonstrate affectionate kindness toward him and all of our little ones. And I charge you to covenant before God to set an example by your lives and to maintain an atmosphere here in the church which shall inspire Declan to the Christian way of life. What that means is, is we don't want to be hypocrites. We want to be earnest, honest, loving Christians who show Declan what it is to follow Jesus for real. So church, I'm going to invite you to please stand. You are responsible for this young man in the ways that I've charged you. Do you agree to do all that you can to provide a place of refuge and worship for Declan, sharing the gospel of Jesus through faithful service to him 
and all the children of the church, supporting Michael and Joycelyn in establishing and maintaining a Christian home, and living out your faith in such a way to inspire Declan to desire the Christian way of life. If you agree, respond loudly and clearly and joyfully with, we do. <laughs> Loved ones, do you agree to support Michael and Joycelyn in their work to raise Declan in a strong Christian home? Committing to regular prayer for them and working alongside them to show Declan genuine Christian love and care as he matures. If you agree, respond with, we do. Michael, Joycelyn, in the sight of God and the presence of these witnesses, do you solemnly undertake to bring up Declan in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Do you promise early to seek to lead him to accept Jesus Christ as Savior and serve him as his Lord? Do you pledge to make your home a place for Christian instruction? Do you promise to set before your son examples to the best of your abilities of consistent godly living? That's okay. Hey, I, I appreciate your passion. And now, by the authority of God's holy word and as a servant of Christ Jesus, I dedicate you, Declan Ashish Jorik, into the Lord and unto his service according to his will. Let's all bow for a word of prayer. Pastor Larry? So in that you have dedicated your son to the Lord, guess what, guys? We're giving him back to you. 
It's your job to take care of him, but to lean upon us when you need help, to honestly seek out guidance when you need it. We pray for God's grace and guidance and his Holy Spirit as you bring him up in the ways of the Lord. God bless you guys, and we look forward to seeing all that you're going to do in parenting him and what God has to do in his life. Amen. Amen. Let's give a round of, a, of just appreciation and, and, and applause to God and to this family for dedicating Declan to the Lord. All right. If you guys want to return to your seats. So a couple of quick announcements as we head into the sermon time. Uh, we are needing a VBS decorating team leader. And uh, the VBS decorating team leader would be in charge of the foyer and the sanctuary. So if you're online today or you're here and you are interested in helping to decorate the foyer and the sanctuary for our Destination Dig VBS, uh, encourage you to uh, just communicate with Missy. Or you can even email uh, faithkids at, uh, is that what it is? Faithkids at faithlakeside.com. Uh, and and uh, you can communicate with Missy and let her know you're interested because you're a crafty person in a good way. Um, <laughs> ladies, you all will not be having Bible study the next two Wednesday nights because of uh, Marlene being out of town and circumstances in the Lipinski's life. Uh, they are watching some great nieflings. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember which, which gender they are, nep great nephew, great niece. So in our family, we just call that niefling when we're not sure. Um, so... Just that they're, they are taking care of them for the next couple of weeks, and so they're a little out of pocket and busy. So uh, no women's Bible study Wednesday nights the next two weeks, the 14th and the 21st. We're going to continue our series on the Christ in the Gospel of Mark. So if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up to the end of chapter 11 in the Gospel of Mark. Remembering that the Gospel is the good news of Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. You know, last week we had the privilege of celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, remembering that he died on the cross as the substitutionary payment for our sins. He took uh, our punishment. He paid the price for our sins. And then to prove it's all true, he wasn't just a good guy who died in a terrible way, but he really is the Son of God, really is completely man. He really can forgive our sins through his death. He rose again on that third day to prove it's all true. And so for everyone who will believe on him, we can be saved from our sins and experience eternal life with the Father. This is the good news, and this is what the Gospel of Mark is trying to teach us every time we encounter it and read. So we ended last week with this simple uh, statement in Mark chapter 11, verse 22, of Jesus telling his followers to have faith in God. And remember, he was talking about that faith... That faith that we can have in God will do the impossible, will move mountains, throw them into the sea. And we talked about how that doesn't need to be anything literal, though God is powerful enough and faith is substantial enough when it is in him alone. But really what Jesus is, is saying to us today is that he wants to do the impossible things in our lives when we trust in him. And impossible isn't bigger house, nicer car, you know, hotter um, spouse, it is impossible. The darkness in our hearts, the sin that we struggle with, those 
tendencies that befall us and keep us from being all that we are to be in Christ, that is what he's telling us is possible to overcome, to cast away, to find healing and refuge from. And so we remember as we move forward in the scriptures, this call from Jesus himself to have faith and trust that he really can do in our lives the amazing works of redemption and restoration and freeing us from slavery to sin that he's promised. So Mark chapter 11, verses 27 and following, uh, we're going to look at another couple of encounters that Jesus has with some of the religious leaders there in his day and um, some, some things that go on. So first, uh, as we begin, open up to Mark chapter 11, verses 27 um, through... Sorry, my iPad decided not to work right today, so I'm, I'm working with, uh, I'm tech deficient. Um, and for somebody who likes technology, that just, ah. So uh, chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. So Jesus and his disciples, this is the, the week before Jesus gives his life on the cross. They've been going in and out of Jerusalem, staying in a little town outside of Jerusalem called Bethany overnight, and then they'll come back into town during the day. So this is where it begins, is Jesus and his disciples coming back into Jerusalem from the little village of Bethany outside. And it says in verse 27, and they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But, uh, but shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all knew, or for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And so here in this culture, it's so important to understand that, that there was this, this level of hier this hierarchy and, and you, you received authority to teach or to do when you followed a teacher or a leader who gave you that authority. And so the, the, the religious leaders of the day, as Jesus comes back into Jerusalem, back into the temple, they're asking him, listen, who told you you could do what you've been doing? Now, if you remember, he, he's had some encounters with these religious leaders just, just the day before, in fact. He had been in the court of Gentiles around the temple there in Jerusalem. He had been driving out the money changers. He had been driving out those who were selling animals and doing it as, as profit, doing it for, for gain instead of to serve uh, the, the temple and, and the activities there as a house of prayer. And so Jesus has already had some run-ins with these leaders, and they're asking him, what, what, why, why do you think you can do this, Jesus? I, I mean, you're just this, this guy from Nazareth. We, we don't even know where you get the, the gall to do this. And Jesus doesn't answer them by saying, well, let me tell you, I'm the king, I'm the son of God, and I'm perfect, and you should be doing what I say. Instead, he turns it around on them and asks them a question. So Jesus asks uh, them, after they ask him, how are you doing this or why are you doing this? 
I want you to answer me just one thing. I want you to, to tell me about John. Now, if you remember earlier in the Gospel of Mark, we see John the Baptist. We meet him. He was outside of Jerusalem down in the, the River Jordan, about a full day's walk away from Jerusalem. He was there baptizing people and calling them to repent of their sin and prepare for the kingdom of God to come. And he actually, we see in the other Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, declares Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And, and so when we look at John and his ministry, which was very popular, John set the stage for and even declared uh, the ministry of Jesus and even declared him to be the Messiah. And so Jesus is asking these religious leaders, listen, I want to know what you thought about John. I, I want to know what your perception of John is. And Jesus is really setting them up. He's giving them two choices. Number one, if they affirm John as a prophet and they affirm his ministry, they are affirming everything that John taught and everything that John declared. And John had declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. John had declared, essentially, Jesus is Messiah. This is the promised one. This is the anointed one. And so to say that the ministry of John was from God is to, by default, and, and carrying it down the line, say that the ministry of Jesus is from God. So they would have answered their own question. If, if they had said, John was a prophet and he was from God, they would have essentially been saying, so we know you are a prophet or you are the Messiah and you are from God. But they also had this other issue. If they denied John's prophetic status, they risked alienating the crowds of people that had gone to be baptized by him. Uh, in the gospel earlier, it tells us that the whole city of Jerusalem had gone out to be baptized. Now, it's, that's kind of an exaggeration, a bit of a hyperbole, but it's to say there were lots and lots of folks who went out to be baptized by John. And these religious leaders who were in the temple were scared to death of these folks. They wanted to keep them just happy enough to, to continue to kowtow and do things the way that the leaders wanted them to. And they didn't want to give them any excuse to rebel. And it was, it was twofold. It was because the religious leaders wanted to keep their power and authority, and they wanted to keep the Jewish people from rebelling against the Roman government. Because if they rebelled against the Roman government, guess what happens next? Soldiers come. Jerusalem is even further occupied. And everybody loses. So they're stuck in this place of declaring Jesus as Messiah, or infuriating the crowds by denying that John was a true prophet. And so how do they answer? Well, they take the easy way out. Well, um, I mean, we, we just, we don't really know. And so Jesus simply tells them, listen, if you can't take a stand, if you can't make a choice, if you can't give an answer, then I don't feel like I need to give an answer to you. If you are not willing to take a stand on what's right or wrong, what's true or false, neither do I feel like I need to be subject to your judgment. And, and, and so Jesus is in doing this, declaring himself to be outside of, of their ability to judge him. 
saying, I'm, I'm above, I'm beyond, I'm outside of you guys. I am sent by God himself. And so we see in Jesus this sureness of who he is, this clear path as he moves forward. But he doesn't stop by just telling them essentially in his answer that they have no authority over them. He begins to declare that he has authority over them in many ways, and yet he understands his relationship with them as well. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, here is what transpires. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But these tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stones that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So this parable telling follows immediately on the heels of Jesus telling these religious leaders that they have no authority over him. And he actually goes on to... to state that he has authority over them and to, to really cast shame upon them as leaders. So he tells them this parable of a man who planted a vineyard. And it's important to understand that all throughout Scripture in the Old Testament that we see different symbols for God's relationship with his chosen people, Israel. And one of them is that Israel is God's vineyard. If we look in uh, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and then later in verse 7, it says this, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So Jesus tells a parable that is rooted in Old Testament prophecy and Old Testament stories of God's relationship with his people, Israel. Not only was there this clear understanding of the relationship between God and Israel as, and Israel as God's vineyard, but also at the very entrance to the temple, which is, this is a kind of a rude rendition of... <laughs> There were two columns, and around those columns were this, this amazingly huge golden grapevine that wrapped up around them and over the top. And, and scale-wise, it had grapes on it that were like the size of your head. And for some of us, those are bigger grapes than others, right? But 
but, but the size of your head and, and, and huge leaves. And, and it was actually kind of this, this thing that if you were a wealthy um, Hebrew and, and you, you were able to, you would donate the gold to have, have a, a leaf or two or three added or maybe another grape. Or maybe if you were very well off, a whole cluster of grapes to help decorate the front of the temple and honor God and to, to dec declare God's relationship with his people and that they were his, his choice vine, his vineyard. And, and it also wasn't uncommon in this day and age for landowners to own a vineyard, to, to rule it from far away and to lease it out to farmers who would tend it. And so this story, this parable that Jesus tells is rooted in both the symbolism of the Old Testament and in everyday practices. So that the people that Jesus is telling this parable to, they wouldn't have been going, what do you mean? Wait, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Like many of us maybe do. We read this and go, this is a fun story. But for the Jews of the day that Jesus is communicating with, this is not just some fun story that's made up, but this is the kind of stuff that would happen on a regular basis. These wealthy landowners would build a vineyard, leave it to lease uh, with, with workers. They'd go away and then they'd send representatives once a year to collect 10% of the proceeds and the rest would go to the workers. And this is how that relationship would work. And it wasn't uncommon in Jesus' day and age for some of those vineyards that were staffed by farmers to for the farmers to uh, to rebel against the landowner because the landowner was distant and he was away there was actually laws in the old testament that possession of the land is is what made ownership and so if you lived there you had a greater claim to ownership over, after a number of years than someone who said they owned it but lived far away and, and so it wasn't uncommon for rebellion to happen in Jesus' day and age. It wasn't uncommon for this very story to play out. And so when, when Jesus is telling this parable, everybody understands that this isn't some sort of made-up story, but this is the kind of stuff we see in human nature all the time. This is the kind of stuff that we see. But Jesus is talking about it in light of God's relationship with Israel. He's saying, you're God's vineyard. And the ones that are supposed to be caring for you aren't doing a very good job. And in fact, when God seeks to have what's due him appropriately and properly, every time he sends a representative, the people who are caring for his vineyard, they treat that representative badly. Now, we can, we can look at like Hebrews chapter 11. And Hebrews chapter 11 talks about some of the prophets that came, some of the men and women of old who lived by faith. And it also describes some of them as having been burned and sawn in two and beheaded. And guess what? Some of the prophets that God had sent to his people to say, turn back to me, give me what is owed. The Jewish people responded by beating them up and sawing them in half and burning them and, and doing lots of great and exciting things instead of honoring God as they should. And so what we have then is after this long line of representatives in Jesus' parable, 
the landowner says, well, wait, I've got one more person I could send to them, and it's my son. There's no way they will disrespect my son. There's no way that they will do anything but respond favorably to my son. And in the parable, Jesus tells us what's going to happen to the son that the landowner sends, that he will be killed and that he will be cast out. And the Jewish people, they all understand that he's talking not about some real vineyard outside of Jerusalem, but he's talking about instead the people of Israel. He's talking about the Jewish people and how they have rejected prophets over and over again and that God has finally gotten to the point that he has sent his only begotten son hoping that his people will respond not in rebellion any longer, not in casting out, not in destroying, but instead in love and honor and respect and give the landowner, give God what he is due. But instead, they kill him and they cast him out. We see this come true. We see it happen just a few days later when the Jewish people see to it that Jesus is killed outside the gates of Jerusalem and dies on a cross, cast out, so that they might stay in charge of their own lives, so that they might be the kings of the vineyard instead of submitting to the one true king. And Jesus says, here's what's going to happen. What is it that the owner of the vineyard is going to do? He's going to come, and he's going to destroy the, uh, destroy the tenants, and he's going to give the vineyard to someone else, to others. Now, we look at that story and go, wow, that's kind of harsh, but guess what? This is what happened for the Jewish people. It, about 40 years later, like we mentioned the last couple of weeks, the Romans came in, and they took Jerusalem under siege. Eventually, they, they conquered Jerusalem. They burned the temple down. They tore the stones in the courtyard up to get the gold that had melted down into the stones. They utterly destroyed the people of Israel. They utterly destroyed God's people. But the vineyard passed on the responsibility of honoring God and caring for, for what he's blessed us with has passed on to the church, the Gentiles, people like, oh, let me think, you and I. And what a blessing it is on one hand that the last tenants behaved they did because we've been invited in. But what a sad story. What a sad story to share and it should also be sobering for us that when the king calls for what's due him, we should respond by giving what he deserves. See, the Jewish people and their leaders refused to give God what was due him. They absolutely refused. They continued to try and be the kings and queens of their own lives. And God responded by removing from them his privilege and protection. And it's important for us to understand that this wasn't some fly-by-night, some, some quick decision, some hasty anger, but we can see over and over again in this parable and in the Old Testament and even in our own lives that God consistently has a hope for his people. He always wants to see us be and do and grow into more. 
He consistently wants to see developing within us Christ-likeness. He's always kind toward us, giving us opportunity after opportunity, giving us chance after chance to respond to him rightly. But I want to tell you that the day does come in God's dealing with each and every one of us, just like in the parable, just like in the lives of the Jewish people, there comes a point where God's severity and his holiness come to bear. That you cannot forever rebel against God and expect there to be no consequences. And ultimately, God's plans will triumph. And the question is, do you want to be part of that or do you want to be on the outside crying, why did I choose this? Why did I decide to live as king of my own life? Jesus says, haven't you read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it, his, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is actually a, a direct reference, a quote of Psalm 118 verses 22 and 23. This is Old Testament prophecy found in the songs of the Jewish people declaring that Jesus was going to come and he'd be rejected, but he would begin a new work, establish a new way of life for everyone who would believe, and it was going to be a marvelous thing. But sadly, the leaders of his day, the people of his day, so many of them did not get to experience the joy of redemption. Instead, they experienced the pain of destruction. Now, what's interesting about these religious leaders, once again, it says they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Twice now, just in, in two short passages, we're told that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, it doesn't say that they feared God and responded in repentance. It doesn't say that they feared God and sought to destroy Jesus because they thought he was a blasphemer. It says they feared the people. They wanted to be popular and comfortable and powerful, and they feared the people. It's not like anything we've experienced in, in recent history. I love government by polling. Anybody, you know, that uh, new, new um, decisions are made by our public servants, our leaders, because so many people support it. Not because it's right, not because it's wrong, not because it's morally upstanding or it's repugnant and should be put away, but instead, well, this is what the people like. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were, were not much different, but it's sad to see what ultimately happens to them. They are rejected, they are destroyed. The next short story, little bit of history we get to see here is in chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And all three of these are linked together by the concept of who's in charge and who will you submit to. So Jesus and his interactions with some of those religious leaders, it goes like this in chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? 
But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So still the authority of Jesus is being questioned and the leaders the religious leaders especially are trying to trap him. There's these two groups working together to trick Jesus into being either a rebel against the Jewish people or a rebel against Rome. It's the, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the, the hardcore Jewish nationalists. They wanted to see to it that Israel was pres preserved. Their heart would have been to kick Rome completely out of the affairs of the Jewish people. And they're working together with a group called the Herodians. And the Herodians were those who supported King Herod, who was a puppet king put in place by the Roman government. And they loved Roman culture. And they, they wanted to see Roman culture come to bear upon all of Israel and, and really celebrate the finer things of life. So you have the, the Jewish nationalists and the, the, the ones who love the oppression of Rome and the culture of Rome working together to try and trap Jesus. And what do they say to him? They say, we know that you are true and don't care about anyone's opinion. Kind of a stark difference to what was said about these religious leaders in the past two interactions, isn't it? Because the, the last two interactions, it ends with, they were afraid of the people. These religious leaders were afraid of popular opinion. They were afraid of the people. And they come to Jesus and they, to get all up and comfortable with him and to try and trick him. They say, we know you don't care about what anyone else thinks. And they're speaking the truth. Jesus didn't care about the opinions of the people because he was there to stand for the truth of the Father. He didn't care about what other people thought about him in the sense of he wasn't concerned about his PR. He was instead concerned about making certain that he clearly communicated that God was calling his people to repentance and to prepare for the coming kingdom, that he was the king who was to come. That's what he was there for. They say, you're not swayed by appearances. You teach the ways of God. They're really kissing up to Jesus, aren't they? They really want him to get comfortable and just answer whatever comes off, uh, you know, his, his chest, you know, right away. Just give us an answer, Jesus. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So th this is a question not of paying taxes. This is a question of, Jesus, who's in charge and of what? Who has the authority in our lives? Does Caesar have the authority in our lives and we pay taxes to him? Or, <coughs> excuse me, or should we stand up against the ways of this world and be good Jewish people who refuse to pay taxes to Caesar? Which is it? They're trying to set the stage for Jesus to either make Herodians angry and earn the disfavor of the Roman government, or to make the Jewish people angry and be rejected as a prophet 
as he kowtowed to the ways of Rome. So it's not a simple question of taxes. It's a deeper question of who's in charge, Jesus? Who gets to ask for things from us? Who should we pay tribute to? And he knows their hypocrisy. He knows they're trying to trick him and trap him. And so he says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So it's a coin that they bring to him. And he says, let me, let me look at it. And they bring him one whose likeness and inscription is this. And they said to him, Caesar's. Now, a denarius, this is a, an actual denarius, a picture of one from Jesus' day, a coin. And on it, you can see on the left is a picture of Tiberius Caesar. And, and on the back, there is someone sitting on a throne. And, and what the inscription literally says, in including these two pictures, is Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, and on the flip side with the guy seated on the throne, chief priest. This is what it says on a denarius. And a denarius was about one day's worth of labor. So if you worked in the fields, you worked as a laborer, this would be a coin you would receive for one day's work. When we see in other parables Jesus talking about the denarius, this is what he's talking about. And it was also used when they're talking about the tax. Every year, every man and woman in the Roman Empire had to bring a denarius and pay the tax just to be alive. One day's wage just to be able to live in Rome. Now, I'm sure they paid for great things like roads and armies and things like that, right? But... This coin, one day's wage, this is the tax they're talking about that every man or woman who lived within the Roman Empire had to pay. And it was also stated, kind of viewed, that because Tiberius's image was on the coin, every coin in the Roman Empire that bore his image belonged to him. And he was allowing everyone to use his coins to pay wages, to pay taxes, to pay for goods because of his grace and his giving. So they were all his coins used by the people. Now, it's interesting to look at the inscription, the, 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 top, the, the top there, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, would have been on the, the face of the coin. When he's, it says son of the divine Augustus, what is it saying? about who he is, son of God. On this coin, Tiberius is saying, I'm king and I'm the son of God. You hear anybody else making a similar claim in the Gospel of Mark? Jesus. Now, what we know is that Jesus is the genuine king. He is the genuine son of God. While Tiberius was just a poser, just a pretender. And there was nothing about Tiberius that was worthy of worship. Nothing about Tiberius that was worthy of praise. And so when the Herodians and the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, this coin that we're supposed to pay to Tiberius, it's one day's wage. Every man and woman should pay the tax to live one coin every year. This coin 
by popular understanding belongs to Tiberius because it has his image on it. And so when Jesus says, whose image is on here, he's saying, who does this belong to? Who does this belong to? Caesar. So his answer, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They were like, you didn't get trapped at all. Wow, you found the way out from our difficult question. You're pretty amazing. I, I mean, even though they wanted to see him destroyed, they still understood the power of what he is saying here. Because Jesus is saying, this coin that you've given to me, this coin that I'm looking at, you and I both understand that because the image of Caesar is on here, it belongs to him. And so when he says, give it back to me, you give it back to him. His image, his ownership, he gets it. And when you look in the mirror, whose image do you see? When you look in scripture, whose image do you see? You see, everything that was created in the image of Caesar, it belonged to him. But everything that is created in the image of God belongs to God. And scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 1 that you and I, male and female, we are created in the image of God. And so when we look at the inscription on our lives, to whom do we belong? God. And so when he says, I ask of you to pay to me yourself. Does he deserve it? Yeah. Jesus is saying he deserves it. He owns us. He can declare it due at any time. We belong to him. Just like this coin belongs to the false god, Tiberius Caesar, your life belongs to the one true God who created you in his image. Martin Luther, in responding to the authority and how we are flagrantly against God, said this, if I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. When we look at the image of God within us and how he deserves everything of us, when he calls due the payment of giving of ourselves, and we answer in rebellion, along with Martin Luther, I would have kicked your tail too, and probably mine. But instead, our God responds in grace and love and hope for us. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, if you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. These questions of authority, it began with Jesus being asked, who gave you the authority to do this? And he declares in his answer, essentially, God. And then he tells the parable and says, and I have been sent by God to declare to you that your honor is due him. 
that it's time for you to give of yourself to him. And then he holds up a coin and says, this coin, it's in the image of Caesar and it belongs to him. And when he says it's his, you give it to him. And in saying it that way, give to Caesar what is Caesar, but give to God's what is God's, he's saying you, each and every one of you, you're made in the image of God. And when he says to you, give me your life, he means give it all to me. Give me your life. Not, no, I'll be in charge until I'm ready to be, you know, take a day off, and then maybe I'll give you my Tuesday, God. No, give me your life. To whom do you owe allegiance? To whom do you belong? The one in whose image you were created. You see, the truth of all of these three stories wrapped together is God has hope for you. Some of you have been hearing him call you over and over again. He's come to the gates of your vineyard and you have declared that you're in charge, that you're the king or queen, and you kick out his messengers. You tell them you have no place here. God has poured out his kindness towards you. Brothers and sisters, he gives us opportunity over and over and over and over again to find hope and healing and restoration. And some of us still hold on to our own selfishness without repentance. I want to tell you, especially if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you keep God out and you hold him at a distance, and you reject his authority over your life, the day will come when the whole world, and you included, will see God's severity and his holiness. He will keep trying, and he will keep trying until the day arrives when he, his patience is over, and we will all face judgment. And some of us will have been washed in the blood of Christ, will be standing before the Father pure and holy, represented by the Son, and will have nothing to worry about. And others who have rejected God's hope and God's kindness over and over again will stand and be judged severely and harshly. And it should be sobering for those of us who are saved, knowing that we need to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And scary for those of you who've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Because this isn't a game, and this isn't made up, and this isn't a fairy tale. Imagine the worst day in the worst place of your life, and multiply it by infinite. And that's the severity of judgment that is on its way. Because the truth is, it doesn't matter how rebellious or powerful you think you are, God will finally triumph whether it comes to the point where you give of yourself to him because you were created in his image and he loves you and you belong to him and so you trust on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior or you stay in ultimate rebellion and you refuse to receive him, he will finally triumph. You cannot beat God. You can't find a loophole. There's no way to trick him into getting what you want. It is submit and know his love and provision or continue in rebellion and be separated from him forever and experience his severity and his holiness because he will triumph. I wanted to end just by letting Jesus speak to us one last time because you know what? Application of scripture can sometimes get too specific, right? 
I could tell you, so what you need to do today is make sure that you're giving 10%. Nah, that's not it. Uh, you need to make sure that you're working a job that glorifies God. That's maybe an application, but that's too specific because some of us, we've got some area of our life where we're holding back in rebellion, whether it's our whole life or just a portion. And so I want to leave it with Jesus' words today. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, the things that are of this life, let them be of this life. Yes, we all need to work. We all need to eat and sleep. And I hope you're still breathing. Right? These are the things we must do. We render unto the flesh the things that are necessary. Understanding, though, that we ultimately are God's. And that Jesus says, I want you to give to God the things that are God's. You, yourself, and all that you are. Each of us might have a very specific and different application for what that means. But I want to challenge you, don't walk away today without hearing Jesus' voice. Give to Caesar those things that are Caesar's, but give to God the things that are God's. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time. We thank you for beautiful baby Declan, who's not such a baby anymore. We thank you that he was created in your image, Father, that he belongs to you, that he is just this beautiful ball of potential. We pray that each of us would see in him your image and honor your image and encourage him to give himself over to you completely. But may our hope and our faith not end for, in just Declan, but may it be for each of us. As, as we look in the mirror today, as, as we see ourselves in the reflection of the glass, may we see men and women created in the image of a loving and generous God who longs for us to be in relationship with you. You want to know us. You want, to, you want us to love you. You want to be, be connected with us intimately. Help us to see ourselves as created in your image, to understand your hope and affection for us. Soften our hearts and help us have the same hope for ourselves that we have for Declan, a life of submission and joy, a life of being turned over to you, Father, giving to you what is due, for we are yours. Thank you again for this time, and I pray that those with questions, those who are seeking and striving, that you would give them the boldness to ask, that they would not just languish alone, but they would walk up to somebody who maybe knows an answer and ask. And so, Father, I thank you for for being so good, so gracious, so loving and hopeful and kind and generous. And we pray that you would, you would withhold judgment and wrath as long as you can so that as many people as possible will give themselves over to you in Christ Jesus. And when the day of judgment comes, thank you that those who've trusted in Jesus will be saved.
pray that you all have a great week of giving to God what is His. In big and small ways throughout this week, giving Him the honor that He's due. And man, it can start just by being thankful in this moment for what you've already given in the last week. Give to God what is His. That can also include things like But students, you've got youth group here uh, Thursday night at 6.30. And of course, Sunday school every Sunday. And I encourage you guys to get connected with God bless and have a great week. If you've got any questions, always